Does he have a beacon? Yes, he does. But I'm not picking up the signal. I'm I'm walking back and forth up the avalanche path, um, but I'm not getting anything. It, it was pretty big. It ripped out to the ground, judging off of where we started. Okay, we do have units headed that way. Looking back up at it after I kind of dusted myself off and thinking like, oh, that was when it became like, oh, shit, where's Jake? Because this thing is so big that like if I can't get him on the radio and I didn't, I honestly didn't even think to call you on the phone, um, but just trying to get the radio, trying to get the radio and then trying to just screaming my head off, you know, it was like, if I can't communicate with him right now, there's no way that he was not in it. Um, just because of the enormity of it, you know, within about, I think 60 seconds. Um, I remember I kind of have a jankity binding and I have to use a multi-tool to kind of pop off one of the heel straps. And as soon as it registered, like, Oh shit, where's Jake? It was like getting in my pocket to get out the multi-tool, popping the binding out, kind of jerry rigging it. And then, you know, pulling out. I, I remember thinking too, like, oh, should I leave my pack? I was like, no shit, you need your, you know, because you hear, like Jake was saying, or not here, but you go out and you practice drills and you do all these things. And then in that moment, uh, that was actually another thought I remember having. In that moment being when I realized I didn't know where Jake was, it became, how the fuck am I going to find Jake? You know, like 15 seconds of like, how am I going to find Jake? How am I going to find Jake? How am I going to find Jake? And then it was like, oh, the beacon, you know, like, oh, yeah, right. That's why I have this thing. Um, and pulling it out and, you know, and then starting to do the search. And I think it was within like maybe 10 minutes, you know, cause I get unstrapped and I start going back up the hill and zigzagging, zigzagging back and forth. And you really quickly realize the enormity of it. And it's like, there's no way I can possibly search this whole field. Like it's like, I'm, I'm going to try, but like, <laughs> this thing is huge. There's no way I'm going to be able to adequately check every spot on this, you know, in a manner in terms of cutting across my angles. And then just the, the difficulty of the travel of, you know, taking a step, being fine, taking a step, being fine, post hole, post hole, taking a step, post hole, you know, and the level of difficulty of moving through a fresh um, avalanche debris field. I'm searching. I'm trying to look for my buddy. I'm going back and forth up the, the avalanche path, uh, going up, you know, but I was at the bottom of it and I got no signal and I see no sign of him. About where was he when the avalanche came down? I thought he was up top, but we have radios and he's not responding to the radio either. I think at about 10 minutes is when I called and I don't honestly remember much of the conversation that I had with him. 
Um, and I was, I was, had real spotty service where it would be like, I'd have a bar, I'd get out. I mean, it's service in the mountains, right? Like if you've been in the mountains, you probably experienced it before. Or even when sometimes he says you have full service, you don't. Um, but like I would have a bar, I'd have two bars. I'd be able to get someone on the phone. I'd be able to talk for five or 10 minutes. And then as I'm walking, performing the search, you know, you kind of duck behind a ridge or whatever and you lose service. Um, and I think I probably searched until about 45 or 50 minutes. Jake and I lived together for a year and a half. One of my best friends and I'd lived with him and his wife before, you know, they were married, you know, in, in the same same house and it was like I just remember thinking like what am I going to tell Sally like I'm, there's no way I'm going to stop until someone come, gets here to tag me out When he first dropped in the first turn probably wasn't the best but then as he got down in it it was even more protected from the wind you could just see, I mean, it was such low density Utah snow, just perfect <laughs> quality. And I mean, obviously getting Jones to go down it myself. And so I watched Sam and about halfway down, um, there's kind of an obvious little rollover. And so I, Sam started skiing to the left there. And so I was thinking that's where he was going to pull off um, to give me the okay to drop in for myself. And so I saw him kind of skiing over to the left, slowing down. And then he kind of disappeared over the edge. And so at that point, it was kind of, I gave it a second and was like, oh man, he went just a little too far, but I felt pretty confident that he had stopped right there. And so again, I kind of gave it a second to see if I saw him go back out into the middle of the chute. But once I didn't see any more, more of him, I assumed that he had just stopped and was just going to hang out by those trees. Um, so my plan was to basically ski right next to his line, meet up with him over by um, the trees right there. There's kind of a ridge line between the two chutes that had some trees in it. And again, knowing Sam, I figured he was going to ski over to that because it looked like the safe zone. Um, and I figured he was just 15 feet further than he meant to go. And obviously he couldn't hike back up to get where he could see me. Um, so at that point I just kind of did my, my usual routine of dropping in and making sure my bindings were tight and pack was strapped on and, um, started to kind of inch forward and, with, again, the intention of just skiing down to about halfway down to where I had last seen Sam. Um, and so on a snowboard uh, in kind of a flat area, like I said I was, you kind of do that little shuffling forward. <laughs> and so I was shuffling, shuffling. And then it was just really weird to see snow started moving right in front of me. And so at first it, it didn't even, I don't even remember seeing the fracture line shoot down or anything, but I remember seeing snow moving. Um, but skiing snowbird all the time, you see sloughs constantly. I mean, it's always pretty manageable sloughs anytime you're skiing powder on steep faces. And so that was where my mind first went was like, oh, like a little bit of slough going on. And then it was kind of like, well, that doesn't really make sense right mm -hmm. here. Like the timing of it, that's kind of weird. And so I looked up kind of over my, it's not really even over my right shoulder because I'm regular also. So it was kind of the way I was facing, but I looked more up the hill and that was when I saw the fracture line um, from the top of the crown. And it was just slow motion. It just pulled out so slow. And again, it was, I believe that part was eight, like the 8 to 12 foot part. And it just, I don't know, it looked like a car backing out. Like it just started moving slow. And then it started getting kind of faster and faster. 
And it was just like, no, like that's not happening. Like I remember specifically thinking like, this isn't real. And then as it came right past me, I was about 18 inches from where then kind of that whole thing pulled out in front of me. And again, I didn't see the fracture line and maybe it was cause I was distracted by seeing where the slab was actually coming from above me. And then obviously as that passes me was just, again, it was like the most unreal thing ever that I was just like, that like is actually a slab that's sliding down. Like it's just going to fizzle out though. Um, some snow will move down the hill, but Sam's in the safe zone. Like, it's fucking crazy, but we'll be all right. <laughs> and then it just kind of, as it passed me, just picked up speed and picked up speed. And then it was like, it was just exactly, if you've ever seen a video of just a big avalanche and I had never seen one that size. I had seen patrol work happen. I've seen some wet slides come down off of superior. I've broken a couple really small soft slabs, but this was just like, it looked like it, James Bond movie or something where it was like hundreds of feet of just snow cloud. And you could see as it was like hitting trees, just like almost exploding. And then it got to the bottom of it. And then that was where it hit. I forget what the hill, there's like a little hill yeah, at the bottom the side. that it, it just hit it with so much force and snow just shot in the air. And it was, I don't know, 20 seconds. It seemed like of just like this snow, just like cloud going higher and higher and higher and just thinking, like, there's no way Sam's in that. Like, there's no way he's in that. Like, he's fine. He had to have been in the safe zone. Like, the original thought was, like, I must have triggered that as I was going forward, but Sam's already off on the side waiting for me. He's probably thinking the same thing I'm thinking. And so I kind of went down along the side of the flank um, to where I could kind of see down a little bit further. And that was when I saw that it had actually, so it basically fractured 18 inches in front of me and then gone down maybe 50 feet. And then it kind of shot directly west. And that's when I saw that it went across the ridgeline and it pulled out both sides. And then that was kind of when it was like, oh my God, like there's no way Sam's not in this. And it was kind of like, I don't know. The first thought was like, there's no way that he didn't get caught in that. And there's no way that he's alive, like seeing how powerful it was. But I immediately went to my radio, started radioing. The first time it seemed like it was on. And then I looked back down at it and it had like shut off while I was looking at it. So I radioed again. And every time I would hit the button, it would turn on and then shut off right as I started talking. So then I pulled out my cell phone. Um, we had both been taking pictures all day. We both took pictures right before we dropped in. So I knew Sam had his phone on. Um, I knew he hadn't turned it off before he dropped in. So I call him and it goes straight to voicemail. And I was like, well, maybe he's calling me. And so hung up, call him again, straight to voicemail, hung up, call him again, straight to voicemail. Um, and after probably five or six tries was just like, hopefully he's just trying to call me, but kind of in the back of my mind, the reality was like, I saw the power of that, like his phone's probably in a million pieces and not, I don't even know if it's in his pocket anymore. Like there's just no way that he's even down there it was kind of like the reality, like logical side of my brain. But obviously I was still kind of holding out that hope. Like there's no way that he's in that. There's no way like he's fine. This is just something, maybe his phone just shut off or he doesn't have service down there. 
And so that was when I decided just to call 911 and let someone else know what was going on. Yeah, is, is someone on their way? Yeah, we've got officers on the way. Hang on just a second. An officer's not going to be able to get up here. It's, it's a couple miles back. Yeah, we're getting search and rescue and everybody up there. I need you to stay on the phone just a second so I can get you to my canyon officer to talk to him, okay? Um, and it's kind of that weird. You always you have the safety plan of calling 911 and knowing exactly what's going to happen. I mean, I've dug pits and done beacon rescues so many times and it's second nature when you're out with your buddies that it's buried and it's like okay I'm gonna start and you go for it and with this it was like the way more real and just way bigger of like first of all if I find Sam how am I gonna get his body out like I'm three miles from a trailhead in deep snow it's gonna be dark like how am I gonna get his body out what if he's got a broken femur and I have to somehow perform like an emergency medical on him to save his life and hike him out. And nobody's going to know where we're even at. And if he doesn't even have cell phone service down there, how's anyone even going to find us? Like we're just going to be stuck out here. And it was like, who else is in this area to like, could someone from snowbird jump over the ridge? Like being by yourself in a rescue is great on paper. And it's really easy when you're digging up, a beacon that's hidden or you're at a beacon park and it's a very controlled environment and there's no consequences and it's just finding a beacon, which is pretty easy to do. And so it was more like the bigger picture. Like I know I can go find his beacon if I can get down there, but then what? No sign of Jake right now. Correct. I'm Jake. I have oh. not seen him. He has a beacon on. Okay. What, what's your friend's name? What's your friend's name? Sam. Okay, and Sam has a beacon? He's been down there for a while now, and I haven't heard anything from him. I just don't know what to do. I'm, like, terrified to go down. Okay, no, that's, that's fine. Do you, do, you, do, you have a do you have a flashlight on you right now? But only my phone, and my phone keeps shutting off because it's so cold. Do you, How do long you, do you think until people are you, out here? Do you have a beacon on you so you can start trying to find your friend? I do, but I'm seriously, it was, it ripped the whole face off. I'm, I'm super frightened to go down there by myself right now. Okay. And so that's where it was calling 911 and honestly pretty frustrating when you're educated on something and you're talking to a dispatcher that it's not their job to be educated on avalanche safety and so talking with them and they're not understanding what I'm saying and their job is also to stay calm in a situation and um, kind of do their list of protocol. And when you're telling someone like my best friend is probably dead and if he's not, he needs someone here in 10 minutes, 15 minutes or he's not going to like he has no more air. And they're like trying to go through their list of questions like, well, tell me your name. What's your location? What's your phone number? And it's like no, you need to like have a helicopter on its way right now if my friend is going to survive. And you just feel like you're getting bumped around and it's no one's fault. It's just that helplessness. And so that was when I started telling them that we needed to contact Snowbird because I felt like at this point that was the only way to have any type of an assistance with it. Um, the phone kept actually freezing and so I would get shut off. And that's when I was looking. And basically where I was standing was about a 10-foot crown and so I was looking about how I could try to get in to the bed surface to get down to Sam. And it ultimately looked like I would have had to jump off of about a 10 foot crown onto a sheet of ice. 
And again, with that, just the feeling of being so alone was like, what happens if I jump off that and I break my leg and then I'm sliding down this face and then I'm not doing anyone any good. No one's going to know where either of us are. Mm-hmm. And so it was like looking at all my options. And again, the options were basically I can go further Southwest ski all the way around, try to get to the bed surface. But then it's kind of, you're past that 15 minute window. So it's very small odds if he's buried um, or I could hike back up, go down the temptation ridge line, ski down. And also it was like, I, there's no way I can do that and get down to him in 15 minutes to do a rescue. And then it was like, or I can jump off of, I mean, essentially a 10 foot cliff into the 40 degree pitch of ice and risk really, I mean, killing myself or hurting myself so bad that I would be completely useless and no one would even know where we're at. Cause the last time I had talked with 911, I had told them I was in white pine up little cottonwood Canyon and their response was, Oh, you're in park city. And so it was like, if I fall down there and I'm hurt and I can't find Sam, no one's going to even know where we're at. Like my wife knew that we were out backcountry skiing, but she would not have been able to tell someone our location specifically to find us. I mean, the Wasatch is a small range, but it's pretty big if you're looking for two people out there. Thinking back to the picture of, you know, how big it was and what the options were and then where I was, it's like, man, I am so incredibly grateful that, you know, you didn't try to crawl down something and that you didn't try to ski something. And then like, that's a whole nother thing where like, if he skis one of those shoots right next to it, it's like, I'm standing right in the middle of the fucking runout zone. You know, like I'm going to get clobbered a second time. Um, I felt like I was getting bounced around as I was making these calls, trying to figure out what the the best route to get down to Sam was going to be. All well in the back of my head was the reality of Sam's dead anyways. I'm trying to get down to recover his body and I'm by myself here. So I need to make sure that I do this the smartest way possible so that I can really recover my best friend's body as quickly as possible and also being in a position where I'm going to be able to carry him out to get him back to the car. And I don't know, it was just one of those ultra unreal, complete adrenaline. Like, I don't know, it was just all reaction, trying to figure out what to do. Um, And so again, the calls have been posted, but essentially I was 911 talking to him. They would say, so you're Sam, where's Jake? And I was like, no, I'm Jake. Sam's at the bottom. I'm at the top. The whole description of this is what's happening, them repeating it back with not what I had just told them. And then them also saying that Snowbird Patrol was on their way up and that they would be there in a couple minutes. And I remember saying, like, are they on snowmobiles? Like, they really need to be here in a couple minutes if we're going to do any sort of a rescue. And they were like, yes, they'll be there. They're on their way. They've been notified. And so as I'm on the phone, I'm just looking the whole time for a helicopter or snowmobiles to come up over a ridge as like that saving grace. And it just wasn't happening, wasn't happening. And then I would say it was probably five to 10 minutes kind of of this constant phone call getting dropped, talking to 911, trying to get them the location and not feeling comfortable that they actually know where we're at, that my phone just wouldn't turn back on that point was when I just felt so helpless. And I remember just kind of sitting up there, just screaming at the top of my lungs and 
just that really serene, weird. Normally in the mountains, if you yell, there's an echo, and it felt like I was just screaming, and it was just nothing. Like, just complete silence. Looking back, I mean, I don't know, the smallest I've ever felt, just sitting on top of a ridgetop, thinking your best friend's a thousand feet below you dead, and feeling like you have no way to get down to them. You have no phone. Obviously, I was scared as well for how I was going to get down. I mean, you can't just sit up on the mountain. Like, and at that point, I was feeling like no one was coming. So it's like all the emotions you can imagine someone goes through. And it finally got to the point where it was pitch black. I was at probably 11,000 feet. It was getting really cold. I had every single layer in my pack on. And it was just like, my phone's not going to turn on. Like it's pointless for me to just sit up here. Like, I'm not helping anyone. They don't know where we're at. Like, Sam's down there, like, I don't know, again, thinking that he's dead, but it's like, I still need to get to him. And finally, it was just like, I just need to get down. Like, I'm no good to anyone here. I need to get down so that I can get on the phone and that I can try to figure out what's going on. And at that point, it did, like I said, it had probably been over an hour And so the plan for me was I'm going to go down to the parking lot and get my phone to work to call 911. And at that point, it was as hard as it was to accept. It was kind of accepting the fact that the rescue on Sam was 100% going to be just for his body and not not trying to actually even have a rescue because it had been so long um, and that we would just recover it with the professional uh, rescue services. Um, and then it was at around like 45, somewhere between like 45 and 55 minutes, I think when the guy who I think he was the, the IC, he called me and I've been a part of some rescue situations in the past before. And all of a sudden it was this very objective. Okay. You know, kind of what Jake was saying at the beginning, like, Tell me what your name is again. Tell me what happened. Tell me who was caught and carried. And it was maybe five minutes of kind of, I'm Sam. I was carried. My friend was in it too. He was at the top. I don't know where he is, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I guess I've never heard of w- what exactly happened. But my um, what I think I've pieced together is that he he had read through the transcripts or listened to the phone calls or something and was able to piece together that, like, oh, these guys are both calling about each other and they're both all right. Uh, um, and so after I had kind of gone through that spiel of being really, real objective with the information, I'm Sam, I was caught, my friend Jake, he was there, he's caught, blah, blah, blah. And um, then at the end of it, I'll never forget, he goes, I'm 90% sure that Jake's alive. And it was just like this, like, whoo, you know, like, holy shit. And you kind of sit down and I hung up the phone. And then about 30 seconds later, it was like, wait a minute. I'm still the only one out here. Jake, what is, what is 90% of, he's pretty sure he's a lot. What does that mean? You know? And I was like, okay, I'm calling him back. And I called him back and I was like, what do you mean by that? And he's like, no, Jake's alive. You know, and maybe you would walk through the gates at that point. Like, I don't know. Um, but he was like, no, Jake's alive. And I remember asking him like, I'm still the only one here can I stop looking? And he was like, yeah, you can stop looking. And then that's finally when I like sat down on my, I remember flipping my board over and sitting down on the base of it and just being like, 
I mean, I was too exhausted, I think, to feel anything. You know, I just kind of sat there and I was like, Ugh. So I remember going down, I ended up getting over to Tri Shoots was really the first place I could see that actually had any snow in it. Um, and just, yeah, it was, it was really weird because the snow was obviously still amazing. But just side slipping down, really just basically trying to do like essentially a ski cut across any slope that was steep, skiing straight over to a tree, waiting, and then kind of the same thing, ski cut back across, looking for a tree. Because there's actually a lot of rocks and there was drop offs and it was completely dark out. And yeah, it was it was the most unenjoyable blower powder snow <laughs> that you could ever imagine. And yeah, it was just, it was awful. And then I finally got down to the run out. And of course, to add injury to insult, I fell in a Creek because again, it was black and just kind of punched through some snow, fell in the water and had one of those moments of just like, I don't know. I'm not the person that really screams or hits stuff. And I remember just like to my knees in water, just like punching the snow, just like, screaming at the top of my lungs just so pissed off and emotional and yeah but knew that I had to keep going and I mean the way down it was just thinking about like I have to call Sam's parents and tell them about this like what's gonna happen with Sam's dogs like his friends like the thoughts of like I mean I definitely was never gonna even probably snowboard again was just like (laughs) this isn't worth it like no matter how good of turns it is it's not worth it and just being just so mad at everything and finally get down. And it was legitimately at white pine. As I was going through, they've got a, like a beacon gate. And as I was walking through the beacon gate, I remember it like flashing as a helicopter, like flew over my head. And part of me was just like, nice of them to show up. Like two and a half hours later, this helicopter is finally here. And like, I walk up to the emergency services and immediately tell them who I am. And, um, I asked, I think it was the incident commander and I just asked him like, have they found Sam's body yet? And at that point he was like, no, Sam's all right. Um, that helicopter's picking him up. And I remember thinking like, Sam's all right. Like you guys found his body. You mean like, you're not going to be like, oh, your buddy's dead. But they were just telling me like, no, we have his, like we have Sam. It was basically how it was framed. And then he was like, he's been looking for you. And I just remember, like, getting hit in the face with, like, don't lie to me. Like, that's not funny. Like, why would you even say that? He was like, yeah, Sam, he's been on the phone with us. Like, that helicopter's picking him up. Like, you'll see him in five minutes. And, like, I don't know. At this point, I'd had two, two and a half hours of, like, accepting what had happened and just being like, what? And, like, I remember just, like, losing it and just, like, no way like there's no way that sam is alive and yeah they were like well it was to add in more insult to injury it was truck sam's truck actually at the white pine and so i didn't have any (laughs) keys for it so i remember just being like can you give me a ride to snowboard (laughs) i actually don't have a way up there and it was just one of the cops that was down there and i mean you could tell he just like was like everything's gonna be all right man And that was just kind of it. And then I was like, at that point, I was asked if I could borrow his phone to call my wife. I mean, at that point, I had been gone for 
12 hours probably. And I was like, my wife's probably worried sick about me. And I know on the phone <laughs> and I just called her and basically was just like crying. I'm just like, Hey Sal, we'll be home. Like some stuff happened, but me and Sam are both okay. Sam and Jake had a very, very close call, and I thank them for sharing their story. It's important when using these events as lessons to make sure we don't play the role of the Monday morning quarterback. In any close call, certain things could have been done differently and would have resulted in a different outcome. Maybe good, maybe bad. Jake and Sam have done a lot of processing following this event. They have debriefed it with many Avalanche professionals and they share their story at Avalanche courses. There are articles and blogs written about this Avalanche from the UAC website to the local paper to the Avalanche Review. I asked Jake and Sam what some of the key takeaway lessons learned were from their experience and how they approach snowboarding in the backcountry differently now. takeaway I think for me is just I think we all accept that the stuff that we do has a lot of risk to it but I also think that I mean myself included we get kind of numb to it I mean you ski I don't know some people go tour 100 days a year and nothing ever happens and it's just that constant almost affirmation that you're making good decisions and yeah, I mean, like I've been able to admit I kind of fell into that trap a little. I was always super cautious in the backcountry. I did everything possible to educate myself, to be prepared for the worst. And it it did get to me a little of like, man, everyone else is skiing these bigger lines. There's so many great, big, um, I mean, world-class backcountry areas so close to home here in the Wasatch and I've always never really skied them besides um, doing very sheltered, very safe, lower angle stuff. And it's not about if you can ski it. It's more about just accepting that the bigger lines have bigger risks. And even if every single person you know has skied it 100 times, there still is that risk. And it was just a good reminder that all it takes is hitting the, the wrong spot. And again, like Sam said, it doesn't matter if it's a green day, yellow day, red day. There's always the risk there and just being willing to accept, I think, that worst case scenario. And even just thinking maybe about that worst case scenario before you make your decision. And if you're still okay with it, then go ahead with it. But I think too many people go out and all they think about is how good the snow is going to be or how good the video they're going to get going to be. And they don't think about what is the worst thing that could happen out here. Thinking about that, because like Sam said, I mean, we've all done it too, where it's like, well, if I go out, I'd rather do something that I love, but it's like, what about your parents and your friends and like your family? Like, Mm -hmm. would they want that for you too? Like it is a selfish decision and it's not to say that you can't recreate, but I think it's, we've had obviously time to reflect on it and I'm still going to backcountry snowboard. Sam's still going to backcountry snowboard, but I doubt we'll ever go out again without 
fully acknowledging what can happen with the decisions that we're making. And I think it just makes you be that much more aware of the little things and having that plan, making sure that you've got some left in the tank, like all of those things that, again, all we can do at the end of the day is make a a smart decision, educate ourselves and kind of do what we love doing and accept that there are risks with it. And that's partly why we enjoy doing it. What is a safe zone? Always having radios with and always over communicating, regardless of the level of comfort that you feel with your partner um, to, to formulate a plan and to say, this is where we're going. This is what we're doing, you know, not just for the day, but for, you know, talking about things on both a, a, a macro and a micro level um, for that micro level of, of that specific run and that specific pitch. Um, and also having, having enough gas left in the tank to perform a search, you know, and what does that realistic, what is that, what is your physical fitness and what is the capability that you have in order to do something like that? If you do encounter some type of a traumatic physical experience. Always looking for that one thing that is the reason to say no, as opposed to just being like, well, yeah, but there's yes and yes and yes and yes and yes and yes. And just this one little thing over here is like, even if that's there, it's a no and we can go find something else to go ski. Also too, you know, like I, we talked about the observation that Greg Gagne had posted and, um, you know, like so incredibly grateful and thankful for all the work that the people at the UAC do. Um, but also totally recognizing that regardless of what a report says, when you step out in the backcountry, that you're taking responsibility for yourself. Um, even if it's a green light day and even if everything for the last week or two or whatever, it says all, all, like all systems are go, you know? Um, so, so really taking the onus on yourself and then, um, yeah, I guess those are some of my big ones. Communication. It eliminates a lot of confusion. Jake and Sam were prepared with radios, and here are some thoughts they have on such radio usage. Um, yeah, we both had radios on us. and um... We'd used them, too, throughout the day. Um, I mean, we obviously checked them before we got started with the day, checked battery levels, which actually is why I was borrowing Sam's was because my batteries were shot. Um, and so he had extra batteries and the extra radio that I just decided to use yeah. his radio for the day. But we tested them out, make sure obviously they were working. We knew how to use them. And the other slope that we had skied, I mean, very much communicated how we were going to use the radios, checked in at the top, checked in after one person got down, communicated the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and then at that point, as we were hiking, we just kind of had, um, I had mine in my jacket pocket Sam had his kind of strapped onto the shoulder strap, but as we were hiking and we were always within voice of each other, we never, we didn't use them anymore. Yeah. So it had been a couple hours since we had, since we had used them. On them for sure. Hiking up and around. Yeah. Um, and we didn't, that was one thing, you know, might be jumping the gun a little bit, but definitely a big takeaway of it for me because the, <laughs> the avalanche was horrible, but the worst part was 
you know, thinking that your best bud is, is dead and gone and, um, having, um, like that's one thing now that I, you know, even if I'm just going out to ski something mellow, it's like, I, I have a couple extra radios on me. And so I just keep them in my car when I'm out touring and it's like, Hey, do you guys have a radio? No. Okay, cool. Take this. You know, cause it just makes the level of communication that you can have with a partner so much more simple. It blows my mind when people don't have them with. It's definitely been, it's been nice to kind of get the support of everyone. Like, I mean, we obviously know it's easy to look back and say we could have done this, this, and this different. And yeah, thanks for having us on. And I mean, honestly, I can't express a big enough piece of gratitude for both of us, um, of the Avalanche community as a whole and the level of, um, openness and vulnerability that people have shown towards us and um, in order to come out and share a story and we've talked about it a lot but if anybody can learn from two guys who had some really dumb luck um, then all the better for it and um, I hope that we as a community continue to, to encourage uh, people to be vulnerable and that we accept them into that vulnerable space because I think it's going to be the only way that people can learn from accidents like this. this have happened to you do you fall into some of the same heuristic traps that sam and jake did that day i know i have if you said yes consider creating better systematic approach to traveling in backcountry avalanche terrain thanks to jake and sam for sharing their story and highlighting some of the takeaway points from this event if you'd like to read more about the accident see some pictures of the avalanche and even study the crown profile you can find a link to the UAC accident report from our website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Special thanks to Drew Hardesty of the UAC for help with this project. Thank you to our sponsors, TAS Gazex and Black Diamond Equipment, for your continued support of the show. Our artwork was created by Mike T, and music for part one and part two of this episode was performed by Anatech, Poddington Bear, Little Glass Men, and Broke for Free made possible by the Creative Commons license and found at freemusicarchive.com. Most of all, thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks for your feedback and support. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Till next time, keep having fun and stay safe out there.